Let's pray and we'll ask God for his help. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we do thank and praise you for giving us your word. We pray that as we look on it, at it now that you help us to understand rightly uh, what Joshua means and you help us as we reflect on Joshua as well as on the New Testament to understand uh, the unity that we have in Christ. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I think uh, most of us would agree on this. Christians should be unified. There should be unity in the Christian church. Jesus himself makes this clear. In fact, it's the one big thing he prays for his disciples. On your outline there you can see a little section from Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17. We'll be looking at John's gospel next year together, including uh, this chapter. But just have a look with me at Jesus' prayer and notice what he prays. Jesus says, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their, that is the apostles' message, that all of them may be one Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Jesus wants us to be unified. But the question is this, how can the church of Jesus be unified? Historically, there have been two main attempts to answer this question. Through the majority of church history, the answer was this. The church is united under one key leader. That's historically been the Pope in the Western Church, the Patriarch in the Eastern Church. The church is united under one key leader. And anyone who tries to divide the church must be punished. Unity is to be coerced. This was particularly true when the church was attached to the Roman Empire. People who disagreed with the decisions of popes and councils were persecuted. The church, using its own power or using the power of the state, punished anyone who brought disunity. That could mean prison, could mean execution, could even mean war. Now, in more recent times, the power of the church has decreased. Also, in most Christian-influenced countries, there's been a, a greater separation between church and state. The church has lost its ability to coerce unity. And as a consequence, there have been thousands upon thousands of divisions within the church. Thousands of different denominations, and schisms, and sects, to the point where today, you have to admit, it's a bit of a mess. The church is very much divided. And so... In the last couple of years, last couple of hundred years, a second movement, a second answer to the question, how can we bring unity, has arisen. A movement has arisen called the ecumenical movement. The ecumenical movement is defined by the Oxford Dictionary of the Christian Church in this way, and I've put this on your outline. You can see it there on the left-hand side. It's the movement in the church towards the recovery of the unity of all believers in Christ transcending differences of creed, ritual, and polity. Do you see the idea of it? We want the church to be united. It doesn't seem to be united when you look at it. And what's dividing us? Well, things like creeds, the, the stuff, that, the, the doctrines and stuff that we say we believe. 
Um, things like rituals, our ceremonies and practices, uh, and polity, the way we structure and govern and look after our churches. Uh, the point of ecumenism is very simple. We all love Jesus. Doesn't matter much what we believe. Doesn't matter much what we do together in church. Doesn't matter much how we structure our churches. We should put aside these petty differences and all be one again, united like Jesus wanted, one big happy family. In our own church's history, ecumenism has had an enormous influence. Back in 1977, under the influence of ecumenism, the majority of the Presbyterian denomination, in fact two-thirds of the Presbyterian denomination, joined up with the Methodist denomination and the Congregationalist denomination. They put aside differences of creed and ritual and polity and they joined together to form the Uniting Church. Do you see the issue? Do, do, do you see what's behind this kind of movement, ecumenism, the uniting church, or, or also behind the idea of coercing unity? The issue is this. Jesus wants his church to be united. Doesn't seem to be united. So what do we do? How do we respond? As we've seen throughout this book of Joshua, unity was very important in Israel as well. The Israelites were united by blood. They were united by being family. But they were also united, more than just by family, they were united in their worship of the one true God and their obedience to the law of Moses. And they've also been united in purpose, in mission. They've been working together to conquer the land. In fact, you may remember from way back in chapter 1, this included the people on the eastern side of the Jordan. You remember the map of the Promised Land we had? There was the Jordan River running down the middle. Most of the tribes are on the left-hand side, the western side. But there are two and a half tribes on the eastern side. There's the Reubenites and the Gadites and uh, another, uh, another ones that we'll see in a second. Um, and uh, they're here on the eastern side. They were allowed to settle in the land conquered on the east of the Jordan, but only on one condition. On the condition that their fighting men kept helping the rest of Israel until together they all had the land. And you may remember back in chapter 1 that the eastern tribes enthusiastically agreed to do this. They said to Joshua, this is chapter 1, verse 16, they said, whatever you have commanded us, we will do. Wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we fully obeyed Moses, so we will obey you. Well now, as we come into Joshua chapter 22, the conquest of the land has basically been accomplished. If you jump with me to, to, to chapter 21 and verse 43, just immediately before chapter 22, you'll see it. Chapter 21, Joshua chapter 21 and verse 43. So the Lord gave Israel all the land he had sworn to give their forefathers, and they took possession of it and settled there. The Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their forefathers. Not one of their enemies withstood them. The Lord handed all their enemies over to them. Not one. Of all the Lord's good promises to the house of Israel failed, everyone was fulfilled. Do you see the situation that we're in now? The job is done. The, the mission is accomplished. Israel have worked together in unity. Now it's time for those eastern tribes to pack up their bags and go home. So Joshua calls them. He says, well done. Time for you to go. But, he says, make very sure of this. Make sure that you keep on obeying and worshipping the true God 
as he is revealed in the law of Moses. Joshua chapter 22 and verse 1. Have a look with me. Joshua chapter 22 and verse 1. Then Joshua summoned the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh and said to them, You have done all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded, and you've obeyed me in everything I commanded. For a long time now, to this very day, you have not deserted your brothers, but have carried out the mission the Lord your God gave you. Now that the Lord your God has given your brothers rest as he promised, return to your homes in the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. But be very careful to keep the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to obey his commands, to hold fast to him and to serve him with all your heart and all your soul. Verses 6 to 8, God blesses, uh, Joshua blesses them. And then in verse 9, they do head home. Verse 9. So the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh left the Israelites at Shiloh in Canaan to, re- to return to Gilead, their own land, which they had acquired in accordance with the command of the Lord through Moses. All sounding very happy so far. When they get home, uh, the eastern tribes build an altar. The western tribes hear about it. And everything starts to go pear-shaped. They assume that it's an altar to worship idols. They assume the eastern tribes are rebelling against God. They're they're starting their own religion. They're they're desperate to maintain the unity of Israel in their worship of the one true God. And so they start to prepare for war. Verse 10. When they came to Gelaloth near the Jordan in the land of Canaan, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh built an imposing altar there by the Jordan. And when the Israelites heard that they had built the altar on the border of Canaan at Galiloth near the Jordan on the Israelite side, the whole assembly of Israel gathered at Shiloh to go to war against them. The western tribes send out a delegation. They say, please don't do this. If you rebel against God, you'll get us all killed. Under God, we are united, whether we like it or not. For better or for worse, God has united on us. If you rebel, it'll impact all of us, just as it's done before. Come over here and be with us if you can't manage to stick with God over on the other side of the Jordan. But whatever you do, do not rebel against God. Verse 15. When they went to Gilead, to Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they said to them, The whole assembly of the Lord says... How could you break faith with the God of Israel like this? How could you turn away from the Lord and build yourselves an altar in rebellion against him now? Was not the sin of Peor enough for us? Up to this very day, we've not cleansed ourselves from that sin, even though a plague fell on the community of the Lord. And are you now turning away from the Lord? If you rebel against the Lord today, tomorrow he'll be angry with the whole community of Israel. If the land you possess is defiled, come over to the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and share the land with us. But do not rebel against the Lord or against us by building an altar for yourselves other than the altar of the Lord our God. When Achan, son of Zerah, acted unfaithfully regarding the devoted things, did not wrath come upon the whole community of Israel? He was not the only one who died for his sin. Things are looking very fragile. We're on a knife edge here. We're on the brink of war. But the eastern tribes explain their actions. They say, this is, this is not an altar for idol worship. No, 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 it's meant to be a reminder. A reminder that, that we are united with you and we will worship the one true God at the sanctuary. Verse 21. 
Then Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh replied to the heads of the clans of Israel, The mighty one, God, the Lord, the mighty one, God, the Lord, he knows. And let Israel know. If this has been in rebellion or disobedience to the Lord, do not spare us this day. If we've built our own order to turn away from the Lord and to offer burnt offerings and grain offerings or to sacrifice fellowship offerings, may the Lord himself call us to account. No! We did it for fear that someday your descendants might say to ours, what do you have to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? The Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, the Reubenites and Gadites. You have no share in the Lord. So your descendants might cause ours to stop fearing the Lord. That's why we said, let us get ready and build an altar, but not for burnt offerings or sacrifices. On the contrary, it is to be a witness between us and you and the generations that follow that we will worship the Lord at his sanctuary with our burnt offerings, sacrifices and fellowship offerings. Then in the future, your descendants will not be able to say to ours, you have no share in the Lord. And we said, if they ever say this to us or to our descendants, we will answer, look at the replica of the Lord's altar, which our fathers built, not for burnt offerings and sacrifices, but as a witness between us and you. Far be it from us to rebel against the Lord and turn away from him today by building an altar for burnt offerings, grain offerings and sacrifices, other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before his tabernacle. Good answer. Good answer. And the Western tribes are satisfied by this answer and war is averted. Verse 30. When Phineas the priest and the leaders of the community, the heads of the clans of the Israelites, heard what Reuben, Gad and Manasseh had to say, they were pleased. And Phineas, son of Eleazar the priest, said to Reuben, Gad and Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is with us because you have not acted unfaithfully toward the Lord in this matter. Now you've rescued the Israelites from the Lord's hand. Then Phinehas, son of Eleazar the priest, and the leaders returned to Canaan from their meeting with the Reubenites and Gadites in Gilead and reported to the Israelites. They were glad to hear the report and praised God. And they talked no more about going to war against them to devastate the country where the Reubenites and the Gadites lived. And the Reubenites and the Gadites gave the altar this name, a witness between us that the Lord is God. Okay, can you see what's here in chapter 22? It's a close shave, isn't it? It's almost civil war. Uh, Israel, they've been united in their mission to conquer the promised land. The eastern tribes have served with the western tribes. Now the job is done, the eastern tribes head home with Joshua warning them, make sure you stick with the Lord. When they get home, they build an altar. The western tribes assume it's an altar for idol worship. They prepare for war, civil war. But the eastern tribes explain, no, 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 no. It's an altar to remind us all of the unity that we share. All right. It's clear from this chapter that the unity of Israel is vital. They are united, united by God. But notice the kind of unity that they have. This is not a unity that transcends differences of creed, ritual and polity. You can't believe what you want and be united with Israel here. You can't have whatever rituals you want and be united with Israel here. You can't have whatever polity and governance you want and be united with Israel here. No way. This is a unity of worshipping the true God in accordance with his word, according to his creed in his word, according to his ritual in his word, according to his polity set out in the law of Moses. 
and notice the links that Israel are willing to go to to enforce unity. They believe that the idolatry of one tribe threatens the existence of the whole nation and they're even willing to start a civil war about it to enforce unity in obedience to God, to coerce unity. Okay. So what do we do with this passage? Uh, In particular, what does this passage teach us about our unity as God's New Testament people? Because it's not the same as in the Old Testament. There are similar things. But but God's people in the New Testament are not the same as in the Old Testament. I mean, now we have both Jew and Gentile together in God's people. It's no longer a unity of being related by blood. Uh, Now we have people from all languages and nations. It's not a political unity anymore. The church isn't a nation. We're not a country like, like Israel was. We need to understand what the New Testament means by the unity of God's people. As we saw in John chapter 17, Jesus prayed for the unity of his people. But but just notice with me the kind of unity that Jesus is talking about. Because it's something similar to what we've seen here in Joshua. Just back there on your outline again, left-hand side at the top. Look at what Jesus prays, John 17. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their, that is the apostles' message. The unity that Jesus is talking about here is a unity that happens when you believe the apostles' message about Jesus. It is not a unity that transcends creed. No, no, it is unity in the creed of the New Testament. It's, it's when you put your faith in the Jesus of the New Testament it is when you can be united. And and I I think this is the critical point now. This is the critical point. The New Testament is clear that God has answered Jesus' prayer. When you put your faith in the biblical Jesus, you do become united with God's people. It happens like this. When we put our faith in Jesus, the Bible says that we are united to him. With our sin taken away, gifted with the Holy Spirit, we are united with Jesus. So, for example, Romans chapter 6 says that we're united with him in his death. We're united with him in his resurrection. We have a new life in Christ. Philippians chapter 2, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, the fact of our unity with Christ should encourage us. When we trust in Jesus, God by his Holy Spirit unites us to Jesus. And therefore, as you are united with Jesus and I am united with Jesus and that person is united with Jesus, in him we are united with each other. So, for example, the New Testament talks talks about us being united as the bride of Christ. It also talks about us being united as the body of Christ. You were all baptised by one spirit into one body, says Paul, 1 Corinthians 12. Or as we saw in our second reading, it also talks about about us being united as the temple of Christ. Jew, Gentile, the wall is torn down. We are together united to God and to each other in this new temple built on the foundation of the apostles, united in the Lord Jesus. When we put our trust in Jesus, 
God, by his Holy Spirit, unites us to each other in Christ. Now, at present, that is a spiritual reality. It is a heavenly reality. It is in the heavenly realms that we are seated with Christ. You can't see it now. It's invisible now. You can't see now who is really united to Christ and part of his body. We will see it eventually in the new heaven and earth. It'll be perfectly clear. And and even though we can't see it now, that doesn't make it any less real. It is true. Now, friends, if I've lost you, come back to me because here's the point. As far as the New Testament is concerned, Jesus' church is united. We don't have to unite Jesus' church. God has already done it. And in heaven, we will see that in all its glory. The unity of Christ's church is real. The unity of Christ's church, the same as every other aspect of our salvation, comes to us by grace, through faith, in Jesus. It is not something we do. It is not unity by works. It is unity by grace, through faith. Do you see the point? It's critical. So how then should we react to this New Testament truth? How should we respond to the reality that we are united to each other in Christ? Well, before we think about what we should do, I think we need to address the ideas we talked about at the beginning, ecumenism and coercion. Let's start with ecumenism. If you understand unity in the New Testament, you'll recognise that ecumenism is a wrong path. It's a wrong turn. You can even see it here in Joshua. It has never been the case that the unity of God's people can transcend creed and practice and and, and ritual and polity. You, You can't build unity by ignoring God's way. No, 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 no. The Bible talks about that kind of unity. For example, at the Tower of Babel, where people unite under their own rules. No, no, our unity must be unity in the biblical message about Jesus. Just like the unity in Joshua is built on obedience to God as he's revealed in the law of Moses, our unity can only be built on our faith and obedience to the biblical Jesus. Any other unity is false. You can pretend that you're united to somebody who doesn't believe in Jesus, but you are not spiritually united to them. You are not in the same body, not in the same temple, not in, you're not part of the bride together. It's just not true. Humanism is the wrong path. But I also think that coercing unity is a wrong path. I know it's what Israel were about to do here in Joshua chapter 22, but it's different now in the New Testament. We're not a nation anymore such that unity can be enforced. We're nowhere commanded to enforce unity in the New Testament by the sword because New Testament unity is found by our genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's not something you can coerce, is it? You can coerce somebody saying they're a Christian. You can coerce a nominalism, but you can't coerce genuine faith. No, no, no. New Testament people, different to the Old Testament people, coercion is just not the way anymore. True unity comes to us by God's grace through faith in Jesus. That means ecumenism and coercion are wrong paths. It's not up to us to create unity. God has created unity in Christ. But that does not mean that our unity in Christ should have no impact on us. Theologian John Woodhouse puts it this way. 
just as the gospel proclaims forgiveness and then demands forgiveness, so the gospel proclaims unity and then demands unity. That is to say, it demands conduct and behavior consistent with the reality of the unity proclaimed. Do you see what he's saying there? If we are united in Christ, then we should live consistently with that reality. We should, to quote the Apostle Paul, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So how do we do that? Well, obviously, foundationally, fundamentally, what we do is we hold fast to the gospel and proclaim the gospel. If it's by being united to Christ that we're united to each other, if that is the source of our unity, that that, that the very foundation is to stick with Jesus and to call other people to be united to him. You, You want the church of Jesus to be united? Preach the gospel. Bring people to men and meat or pay Ellenites. Get people to hear about Jesus, put their trust in him. That is what will unite them in the body. But the New Testament talks about other things as well. Things that will help us to live in a united way. Things that will help us to avoid fights and schisms and divisions. The New Testament talks about things like things like humility. Things like compassion, kindness, honesty, integrity. Things like hospitality. Things like peacemaking. Now, obviously, these things will be most significant in the context of our families and our local congregation. And that's where the rubber hits the road. In the New Testament, our reaction to unity, it's not about whether we should be uniting Presbyterian churches and Methodist churches. No, no, no. It's all about you living out the unity you have with other believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's about personal relationships. It's about the way we treat the people that we rub up with day day, day after day. Of course, that's not where it ends, but that's where it's fundamental for you and me. Are we living in a way that is united with other people? Are there divisions in our families, divisions in our lives, divisions in our churches because of our pride, because of our sin that we need to fix in light of the unity that's ours in Christ? It does go beyond our personal relationships though, of course. I personally don't see any great problem with different denominations. I think there ought to be room for us to follow our consciences on things like polity and practice. But the fact is this, All genuine believers, no matter what their label, all genuine believers in Jesus are united in him to us. And we will be united in heaven together forever. And so here and now, we should manifest that by acting in love and grace towards each other. The Bible says, the New Testament says that we should should show kindness to all people, but especially to the household of believers. Where it's helpful, we should be willing to work together to further, further the gospel in this world whether that's within denominations or even across denominations, but whether we work together or not, we need to act in a way that reflects the fact of our unity in Jesus. Do you see the point? Uh, In the year 2012, I had the privilege of travelling to Italy for three months for long service leave. We arrived in Florence at midnight on Saturday night after about a 36-hour flight. Uh, Because I'm a fascist, I insisted that my family be at church the following morning at 9.30am. And so we went along to a brethren church. There we were, exhausted, matchsticks in our eyes to keep them open. On the other side of the world, a completely strange city with a group of of complete strangers. We happen to know two people in the congregation, three people in the congregation. But other than that, a group of complete strangers from a different Christian denomination. There was a language barrier. There was a cultural barrier. There was any barrier you can think of was there. And yet, you know what? 
straight away. I felt a profound unity with those people. We, we had so much in common immediately, and they were so gracious in welcoming us, befriending us, showing us hospitality. That day, we were at lunch with people from the church. Friends, we are united in Jesus, and that is exactly the way to show it, to transcend whatever boundaries there are by the unity that is ours in Christ. We don't need to force everyone to, to believe exactly what we believe. Coercion's the wrong path. We, we don't need, to, we don't need to, to pretend that we're united with people that we're not united with. Communism's the wrong path. But what we do need to do is humbly love and welcome Jesus' people, no matter what the barriers. Strive to keep the unity of spirit through the bond of peace. Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he has died on the cross and risen again from the dead so that our sin is taken away and we are united to him and in him to each other. We thank you for this reality that exists now spiritually in the heavenly realms and that will exist in the new heaven and new earth where we see ourselves in perfect unity. Lord, we long for that day. And we pray that here and now you would help us to live out the unity that is ours in Jesus. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.